0: Does Madonna, Americans... This ain't your grandpa's Christianity, that is for sure. Maybe your grandpa's a badass. Who knows? If your grandpa, if this is your grandpa's Christianity, can he come <laughs> on the podcast, please? Because I want to talk to that fucker. Hey. Welcome to Owls at Dawn. We are just two dudes from Southern California who studied philosophy, politics, and religion around the world and decided to start a podcast with Bullshit with Impunity. I'm Austin Hayden-Smith. And I'm Troy Polidori. And this week we're jumping into Chapter 2, Part 2 of our new book club series on... Daniel Colucciello Barber's On Diaspora. This is a follow-up to the episode, a couple episodes ago, I think it was episode 80, where we did the introduction to the text, and then chapter 1, uh, on imminence and this is going to be a chapter on the concept of diaspora so stay tuned for that it's definitely going to introduce you to some themes and concepts in a very unique way i would imagine so yeah be prepared for, sure. for that <laughs> <laughs> this ain't your grandpa's christianity that is for sure
1: <laughs> and if you want to support us you can go on to patreon.com slash at don we have multiple tiers through which you can support us uh one tier the democracy motherfuckers for two dollars a month. Gives you the chance to vote on a listener-sponsored episode. Um, we had our last one a few weeks ago. We should have another one coming up relatively soon. And yeah, you can I think also... I think
0: beginning of April we should probably do another poll for that one. Yeah? Yeah, for sure. Okay, cool. Yeah, and yeah, exactly.
1: And you can also support us at a higher level and get access to bonus episodes and our monthly newsletter and uh naked pictures of austin at least at least ass, at least you know
0: you're offering that right? i mean i haven't been in the gym for the past little while so they might be older but um you know 2018 austin naked pictures will have to suffice i guess
1: we can even body double you like you're you know, some famous uh, american <laughs> actor or actress
0: but let's go super extreme with it like put my head on the rock And I'm not talking about, like, early Rock when he's WWE, but I'm talking about, like, Hercules the Rock, where he's clearly got some Mexican supplements flowing through his vein.
1: I don't know, dude. I think you're in Australia. You got to go with one of the Hemsworth brothers, don't you?
0: I mean, Liam's body would be more uh, kind of, uh, I guess, analogous to mine, but Chris is Thor.
1: Yeah, I don't even know who Liam is. (laughs)
0: uh he's the dude from uh you do it's oh god the dystopian hunger games he's oh
1: that's right i forgot about he's the
0: one that he's the he's the pretty boy in hunger games
1: okay well there you go
0: that she has back home yeah yeah that's a little bit a
1: little bit of you and katniss there we go
0: yeah exactly and he is um hannah montana's like fiance or boyfriend or whatever or off and on i don't know if they're still together at the moment
1: Wow, this is really going down the track of things I don't want to know.
0: (laughs) Uh, Yes, but go to patreon.com slash dawn and you can get access to that. And um, as of right now, the newsletter should be out for March. So uh, keep an eye out for that. If you want access to it, head over to Patreon and you'll be able to get that too.
1: So we should have some new bonus episodes coming out uh, relatively soon as well. So sign up so you can get access to those.
0: Sweet. All right, man. Well, let's get into the show. So the first thing we got to do is start off the way we start off every motherfucking episode. It's with the shitty minute. It's where one of us gets to rant and rave about something that's been pissing us off over the previous week. So Troy, what's got you down, man?
1: Okay, so I, I don't, I didn't check on this, but I'm pretty sure knowing me that I've done this as a shitty minute before. Um, <laughs> but I think it's okay because we're on episode 82 right now. And at that point, if we start recycling shit if you haven't noticed that we've been recycling shit I haven't noticed so <laughs> it's happened like it's for sure happened it's going to keep happening if you've listened to 82 episodes of this ridiculous show then just you, you get to expect there's going to be some recycled material right
0: so mm-hmm.
1: we're, in, we're in the middle of uh, March madness right now I just started um, the weekend that we're recording this right now but by, by the time you hear this episode we'll probably have been through the first weekend of
0: the upsets will have the occurred moment.
1: Yeah, uh, fun will be had. No money will be made by people doing the work, um, and and there will be upsets. Um, and there's one common refrain you hear, and I, I bet you could even predict what I'm going to say here um, from people who watch college basketball and get really. If into the you tournament.
0: start talking shit about college basketball, about how college is better because it's a team sport, is that what you're mad at? Is that what you're mad <laughs> no, at? No, it's not that. Even though that that's okay. kind of stupid too. Um, okay. The common
1: refrain, and maybe it's, there's like a constellation of ideas here that are all bad, but the worst one of them is the college basketball is better because they try harder than okay. the professionals is usually the comparison. Oh yeah.
0: Cause, cause they're, they're playing for their school and not for the money. So there's some sort of integrity that they have more to it.
1: Yeah. There's that. I think there's also a subtle, sometimes not so subtle. We like the teams full of unathletic white guys. That's not. I'm not going to say it's always has that racial dimension to it, but there's there's something there, I would think. But anyway, regardless of that, that might just be you know armchair psychologizing. I don't want to go down that road. Um, it's the idea that, and I think people are mostly honestly make this mistake. They think it looks like, it appears as though the college players are playing harder. But here's the thing, they're not. They're just bad at basketball.
0: Is this the the Mark Madsen theory? Like, it looks like he was playing hard all the time, but he was really just a spaz? (laughs) Well, no. The thing about guys like
1: Mark Madsen, who was a spaz, um, and other guys like that, like uh, Alex Caruso on the Lakers. (laughs) Luke Walton actually wasn't. He was super chill and more of a skill guy. He wasn't really an effort guy. Um, okay. Although I mean, he was so unathletic that maybe that was
0: effort. I don't know, but um, because it looks, it, yeah, he's when you're really unathletic, it looks like you're a spaz.
1: Yeah, for sure. Um, and lots, of, there's lots of you know, kind of unathletic white guys in the NBA who are those like dirt dogs, right? That's a that's a real thing. It's a real trope, um, or a trope that's based on some you know actual evidence. And the Grandus, reason for that, baby, is, yeah, and the reason for that is because. If you're an athletic, you're not going to get into the NBA unless you are extraordinarily skilled and or extraordinarily gifted in terms of effort that you can give, mm. which is a skill, right? Certain people have it and certain people don't. Um, mm. And so that's real. The the difference here is in college basketball, it's not that they're playing harder, it's that they're playing dumber. And when you play dumb, oftentimes you, you don't have the focus and the anticipation and the mm-hmm. habits, right, built up to just effortlessly do the things that you need to do um, for your role in the team. So guys mm-hmm. just kind of like run into each other, are scrambling after the ball, um, don't have any direction. So there's more, there's more sort of purposeless movement. And that looks like they're playing hard. And they're, they're playing hard, for sure. Like, it's not like they're being lazy. But they're not playing well. They're not playing smart. And you can play hard and not smart. And that's like, that should be the tagline of NCAA basketball play hard, not smart.
0: <laughs> and so. That's actually, that's actually a really good t shirt. <laughs> can, yeah. can that be our slogan? Owls at Dawn play hard, not smart. <laughs> I just want, yeah, Wisconsin <laughs>
1: basketball play hard, not smart. <laughs> so yeah. here's the thing don't say college is better because they play harder. Um, because it's just not true. But it's still okay like college basketball. I like it. The tournament's awesome. Part of watching guys who weren't very good at basketball try really, really hard to win at basketball is fun. That's okay. And you can enjoy that. The spastic element to it may be more endearing than watching people who are extremely skilled effortlessly portray their skill or display their skill. I get that. Mm. And I enjoy that. And, you know, know, fits and bursts too. Um, But don't make it some kind of competition where it's as if college players are playing because they're not making any money or because they're playing for school spirit or because it's all about brotherhood. They have this extra dimension of effort that they give. And when you get to the NBA, you make money and you don't care anymore. That's just a really dumb trope that's based on, you know, some psychological tropes that exist and have some truth to them about, you know, how much effort you give when you make money doing something, but that's not at all applicable in this situation for reasons I'm not going to go into right now. But just enjoy college basketball for what it is. It's a bunch of guys who are moderately skilled at a thing, kind of doing it better than most people, but not all that well overall. And they really, really care about it. And so that's kind of fun. It's like when you go watch AYSO soccer with a bunch of five to seven-year-olds and they're all (laughs) tripping over each other and running into each other and crying. And they really care and they're really trying hard until they shit their diapers. And then, you know, you have to have a timeout and all that kind of stuff um that's fun for in its own kind of particular way it's not because you're enjoying watching you know transcendent skill so enjoy it for for that reason
0: i have more fun at aso games than i do at like mls games but it's not because the players are better it's because (laughs) the environment is more fun and i think that's the thing is the environment of college basketball It, there is more of an investment in school spirit and stuff like that. And part of it is all surrounding this myth that we have created about the amateur athlete having pride or like some sort of integrity in their athletic output. Whereas professionals somehow, because they're getting paid, it contaminates the purity of sport. Right. Which is an interesting thing to explore. But I do have a counterpoint for you. Just two words LeBron James. That motherfucker does not play defense. All right. So maybe yeah, I have three words for you. LeBron, James, defense. He is not playing hard. Whereas, well, you know, if you watch Syracuse, every motherfucker is playing that zone defense as best they can.
1: You can't play zone defense hard, by definition. Like That's an analytically <laughs> yeah. false statement, that you're playing zone defense hard. No, um, you have to
0: engage the faculties. You have to be <laughs> aware, bro. It's not necessarily movement hard, but you have, to, you have to move.
1: Yeah, four inches uh, a play. Um <laughs> Also, I'll respond to your counterpoint with LeBron James not playing defense, which is absolutely true. With uh, every star of every college basketball team, other than a select few guys who are just awesome, like Zion Williamson, don't play defense either because uh, they have so many responsibilities on their offense because they're often the only guy on the team that's any good. Um, that yeah. They're just hidden completely on defense. Like, look at... We just saw... Did you see anything about John Morant from Murray State
0: yesterday? I... I I know who he is, but I didn't see what happened yesterday. What's up?
1: Yeah, he had a triple-double. He's probably going to be the second pick in the draft after Zion. Um, That guy doesn't play defense to save his life, (laughs) which is fine because he's on Murray State, and he's the only guy who's any good, and he has to do everything for them. And he has to score 40
0: points. Yeah, exactly.
1: So, yeah, it's it's the exact same in college, uh, except for the select few guys who are just gifted athletically enough to give it on both ends,
0: which is true in the NBA, too. You know there's another element to this though that needs to be considered that a lot of people sort of forget and I think it's because we think wrongly I th- I would say that playing sports is a privilege that like these professional athletes should just be thankful that we're allowing them to make millions of dollars cuz we pay their salaries right there's like this strange it's almost like a social contract kind of theory like well we don't have the athletic skills to do it so we allow you the uh, supreme people do it, and in return, we pay you money to entertain us. There's this strange sort of like, uh, yeah, it is. It's almost like the the social contract idea, right? That we have bestowed these responsibilities to these other people, but nevertheless, they still serve us kind of mentality, um, which I think is wrong. But there's also something to consider that a lot of professional athletes talk about this, that they don't they don't love it sometimes. You know, if you're a professional football player, for example, and you've been playing for seven years, and your knees are fucked, and... You're tired of traveling and you're tired of kind of living in hotels and maybe you're just kind of like a small town person, but this is your job. You wake up and you do it. There is a sort of mundanity that comes along with professional sports that loses a little bit of that luster that would also be an interesting foil to add to this idea that kind of goes into why it is that um, the college athlete plays quote unquote harder. Maybe there is a sense in which they haven't been burdened yet by professionalism they haven't been burdened yet. But then the other side to that is, yeah, but they're also coursework. Some of them are legacies. They're only playing because their parents want them to play or something like that. So there are all these other factors that need to be considered when we're talking about this. You know?
1: Did you watch the Netflix movie that came out last month, High Flying Bird, the new Steven Soderbergh film?
0: Oh, no. I really want to, though. Yeah. I mean, it's super boring.
1: So unless you're really oh, into like, the nitty gritty of basketball, which I am, so I enjoyed it. Uh, I'm not sure that you'll like it so much, but I think you'll okay. like it for sure. Um, and the whole thing was shot in an iPhone too, which is, he's done that a few times now and it's, it's pretty interesting. Um, but it's a basketball movie where no actual basketball is played, like zero. Hmm. Like a guy holds a basketball a couple times and that's it. But, um, the movie is a lot about this idea that exploring that notion that some of the the luster and the passion for basketball gets lost when you involve it in this sort of corporate sphere. Right. Hmm. Um, and that the solution to it is not the sort of college purity model. Um, which is pretty regressive, right? I think we'd all say that. But instead is, uh, what if the players own the teams? Mm. What if they actually um, ran the teams and did it themselves? So a whole different model for how professional Mm. basketball is. And so I thought that was an interesting way of kind of agreeing with sort of the diagnosis that you're making, which I also agree with. It's certainly part of it. I think we even talked about this offline. You know, a lot of the NBA stars often talk about their one year of college sometimes where they're on campus for six months as being the greatest time of their life. Mm. Um, And that's for good reason. Like there's a lot about that experience that just would be awesome. And you can't replicate that uh, in the professional sphere. Um, But that there's other models that are available than either the sort of regressive work for free, work for passion college Mm. model and the uh, professional but corporatized version that is the MBA.
0: Mm. You know, I mean, I know we're going kind of long on this, but there's some interesting stuff in this too. Like when I lived in Ireland, one of the things that I, you, you kind of just get caught up in is their, um, their Gaelic football, which is, uh, and then they, of course, they have um, hurling, which is another, but they have the, the, the Gaelic games, which is this time of the year where all the counties compete in hurling and in uh, Gaelic football, which is kind of like a mix between Aussie rules football, it's kind of like rugby mixed with soccer a little bit. Um, it's it's kind of hard to explain, but it's really an interesting sport. But they're all amateur athletes, and the entire country comes together. and I remember it was really strange for me. I was like, "You mean the athletes get paid nothing?" and they're filling out stadiums with tens of thousands of people, especially when you get to the the championship, you know, and uh, it was really, it was hard for me. I was like, they don't get anything, like like not even like kickbacks or free cars or something <laughs> like that. And I guess like some of the top athletes do, they get good jobs, like they'll get a job at a bank or they'll get a job like managing a car dealership or something like that. that i get sponsorships? Some, uh, the club does. So if you're a carry, uh, the club does, but all that money goes towards the facilities and towards training and um, okay. stuff like that. It doesn't go to the players at all. So there are sponsorships, but the players don't see any dividends. But it, I will say this. There is something amazing about the tradition of these counties all competing with one another. I think there are 32 counties. And, and then it's, it's also North and the Republic that are all, all involved in this. And there is something really kind of amazing about um, it being about kind of both galvanizing the country around this lineage and they talk about the heroes and it's like their grandparents. And because they're not professional athletes, these people, not that they're not athletic individuals, but they're not super freaks like LeBron, who's like the uber munch, right? Like these are kind of just people that you would know that uh, their grandpa and their grandpa's grandpa are all played on the hurling team or they all played Gaelic or whatever. And there's something connective about it that isn't corporatized or that isn't commercialized or commodified that is really lovely you know it's just hard because college basketball isn't that way because it's such a money generator for the universities that it's hard to talk about it in the same sense um so i don't know i don't really have a point there but it's just been a it was a lovely experience to be involved in for when i was
1: no, I'm totally with you, dude. I, I I'm super into the romantic romanticization of uh, sort of regional sports teams and the rivalries that come with that, and the passion of being involved with your local group. But then that passion doesn't become like you know wartime nationality or national nationalism or something like that. Right. Uh, regionalism. So yeah, I love that too. And yeah, I think you're right that the, the difference of the college uh, sports scene here in America is that um, that clearly is utilized as in a like bad faith way to make billions of dollars for the NCAA. Um, so it has, even though that I think a lot of people uh, have that true um, authentic passion for their alma mater sports team. And that's obviously has nothing to do with the NCAA and their you know, machinations behind the scenes. It's, it's hard not to see it for what it really is, which is weaponizing people's authentic passion to, disenfranchise and expropriate money from the workers
0: hmm. yeah 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 what did you say what's the slogan again uh play hard not smart play hard not smart
1: all right so should we get into uh, on diaspora
0: yeah dude let's do it
1: all right so as austin was saying earlier in the beginning of the episode uh, we did the preface in chapter one to dan barbers on diaspora a couple weeks ago so if you want to go back and listen to that first, if you haven't, certainly that would be a helpful way to get introduced to this. Because there's some there's some technical language and concepts used in this book that jumping into the middle of it would be rather difficult, wouldn't you say?
0: Uh, yeah. <laughs> Very much so, I think.
1: So um, do you think uh, there's a way to sort of, um, in retrospect, really quickly review... That first chapter on eminence?
0: Okay. I would say <clears throat> the essential thing that he's trying to do is think think imminence. What does that mean? What is imminence? So imminence uh, is oftentimes viewed as either being below uh, transcendence or somehow a derivative of or a degradation of transcendence. And it's this relationship between transcendence and immanence, with transcendence having priority and immanence being sort of secondary, that Barbara wants to contest and sort of dissolve, actually, I would say, entirely, so that immanence is viewed as this excessive primary concept that in itself is nameless. It is beyond signification. It is beyond capture. It is beyond explanation, determination. He says signification, right? And that is that you cannot determine final or absolute meaning by enclosing it within linguistic systems. But rather, imminence is always excessive. Um, And it is excessive in its expression of itself. So there's also a sort of movement of imminence. It's a, a sort of unfolding. It's a becoming. Um, so not only is it beyond uh, or excessive or that there's a surplus, but it's also productive. And it's precisely productive because it can't be signified. So there's this this paradox with there's always an effort to signify, We're always coming up with systems of meaning, and we're always delineating and determining things. But nevertheless, uh, in our determinations, there's always something more that is scrambling, or that is kind of um, uh, fraying the edges, let's say, of our significations, contesting them and calling them to pay attention to and to attest to the more than. And so that's what he wants us to be thinking. Yeah, go ahead.
1: Yeah, and importantly, um, this is not a kind of negative theology where the namelessness takes precedence um there's not really room for like a mystical silence or like a wittgensteinian you know "whereof you cannot speak thereof you must be silent type of response uh, instead mm. barbara thinks you have to sort of admit to namelessness but then also admit to the necessity of excessive naming he calls it right or improper naming so you yeah. actually do have to go out and uh and follow like, the logic of determination. You have to speak about things. You have to predicate of objects. You have to talk about the nature of the world with always the realization that it's going to relay back to the namelessness, right? To the sort of instability at the heart of imminence. Um, so that yeah. I think you used the ping pong analogy, or was it Pong?
0: Analogy? Yeah, ping pong. Well, but actually, both work, but yeah, ping pong is what I said.
1: Yeah. Um, and the ping pong analogy means this back and forth relay, right? So it's not either. A mystical silence, in the at the face of like namelessness. Nor was it um, the ability to expound truthfully and accurately upon the nature of the world. It's a relay between both of those. I think the mm-hmm. term he uses at one point that that stuck in my mind was reciprocal co-constitution.
0: Yes, I like that, and it's it's inverting our understandings of causal relations, where generally the cause-effect relation is that somehow the cause has priority or the cause has some sort of essence in it uh, that is more than the effect and that there is some sort of uh, discrete separation between the cause and the effect. And the way that he wants to think about the relationship of cause and effect between signification and namelessness um, is that there's actually this uh, kind of back and forth Constitutive relation where signification is constituted precisely in uh, namelessnesses or imminences expression of itself, but then simultaneously there's a reverse causality where uh, imminence is kind of constituted in its articulation of itself or in its expression of itself. So it's kind of this weird paradoxical understanding of of the way these two things relate to one another rather than it being a sort of linear sequential A produces B, B produces C. It's kind of A produces A1 and then A1 also goes back or, or like A produces B and then B goes back and produces AB or something like that. I'm, I'm trying to, to use an analogy here that would make sense but it's you can't completely separate them as distinct units. They are integrally related as they create each other.
1: Yeah, uh, a term that he uses in this chapter, which we'll get to, but I want to just kind of anticipate it now, is he uses the term discontinuity um, to kind of get again at this lack of stability at the heart of imminence. And I, I wrote down the phrase, although he didn't say this, I thought it was representative of what he was arguing for, fractal discontinuity. The discontinuity mm-hmm. itself is discontinuous all the way down
0: mm-hmm. with itself.
1: Yeah. And I think that, that analogy, if you know about how fractals work, um, Pictured it well for me.
0: Yeah, and and I'll be honest. This is difficult stuff to think through because it is very counterintuitive, and and part of the the reason that it's so counterintuitive is Barber is clearly drawing from the work of Gilles Deleuze. Uh, he actually talks about it in this chapter, I believe, where he says in a footnote that this concept of problematization or the problematic is something that he derives from Deleuze's Difference in Repetition, and we'll get into that, I think, in a, in a minute, but. I think it's important to understand Deleuze's project from the outset, from this book *Difference and Repetition*, which was published in some It's an older text; it's one of his earliest texts. Um, Wasn't it based? If on his not dissertation? his first, yeah, it was his dissertation. But I can't remember if he published it first or if he published another book first before that. But yeah, it's his. It's his dissertation, um, and uh, and in it, he's basically overturning the commonsensical notion of the law of identity that A is equal to A. And Deleuze wants to actually, instead of thinking identity first, he wants to think difference first. So generally now, we think of difference as being the differential relation between two identities. So I have a cup on my desk, and I have a book on my desk. And they are different insofar as the identity of my cup or the identity of the cup is different from the identity of the book. And that's what establishes their differential relation. So difference is something that is secondary uh, as it is... uh, as it is a description of the relation of the two identities or how they relate to one another. Deleuze overturns that and says actually what you have first is difference. Difference is just this field of undifferentiated, unbounded um differentiality that is only individuated when we determine the cup to be the cup. Now of course there are differentiations between the cup and the book, but nevertheless that's a different that's a second order differentiation that Uh, can only be understood once we have constituted them in their identities, which themselves are products of this differentiation process before that. It's It's super strange. It's super different to kind of think through from how we tend to think of things, but that's where Barbara is starting from. And so if you're interested in kind of trying to figure out how to grasp this a little bit more, maybe go to like Wikipedia or something and type in Gilles Deleuze, uh, it's d e l e u z e and difference and it might help you kind of grapple with this a little bit more but it is difficult and i think actually this second chapter in a way kind of helps clarify this this notion of difference as being a sort of prior thing through the concept of diaspora it kind of it kind of creates a nice um metaphor it creates a nice signification that i think really helps us to think through what what deleuze is getting at and kind of then how we can understand christianity as being sort of diasporic or a sort of differential discourse don't you think as a non-delizian
1: yeah i've always had trouble with that idea and anybody who's like into analytic metaphysics in the audience will just like get up and throw your phone or your laptop thinking (laughs) about this um and so i think that this has been i still don't get it but (laughs) i think that this chapter was helpful in thinking about um how at least this framing of difference being logically prior to identity could be worked out in thought
0: yeah well cool well then let's get into it because i i said this at the outset this ain't your grandpa's christianity what barber is doing in this Maybe your grandpa's
1: a badass who knows
0: if your grandpa if this is your grandpa's christianity can he come (laughs) on the podcast please because i want to talk to that fucker um so in this chapter Barber wants to look at the concept of diaspora. He talks about it in chapter 1 that he wants to think the concept of diaspora. He's not looking so much at the historical or sociological fact of diaspora, even though there is a sense in which he's abstracting from that, right? Uh, when he, Especially when he talks about Yoder and a little bit, uh, he quotes, uh, there's a passage where he's talking about sort of the experience of Jewish diaspora in the ghettos. But that's kind of all um, in service of this larger theoretical project. So, uh, the first thing I want to say is that there's a quote that leads this chapter in, and the quote is from Jesus, and it's "If you greet only your brothers and sisters, what more are you doing than others? Do not even Gentiles do the same?" And that was the reason one of the he uses fire
1: lines in the New Testament, by the way.
0: Oh God, yeah, right. Like, oh, big deal. You greet your brothers and sisters. Doesn't fucking everybody do that? Like, you think that makes you special? <laughs> I love that. Um, that's how that, that would be the Twitter version, right? That's so snarky. <laughs> are you are you saying that Jesus would have owned on Twitter? Oh, dude, he was so snarky, man. Are, are you kidding me? Yeah, the like, sermon on the whatnot, way that, dude. Oh, yeah. Oh. But, <laughs> the way that he talks to the fucking Pharisees in this adjuice. Oh, yeah, my God. So so whitewashed snarthy. tombs,
1: you snakes.
0: <laughs> 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 like, oh, really? You guys think you're badasses? God. Um. Yeah, so the reason that Barber starts off the chapter with that quote is because he basically wants to talk about uh, what he sees as being this uh, attention, right? And, and people see this tension all the time, and it's the tension between the Christian declaration of the gospel, which is the good news, and then um, the sort of historical enactment of that declaration. And that they're, you know, you hear this all the time. It's like, well, the the, the evangelical church isn't really Christian. True Christianity is just doing X, Y, Z, you know. Um, and then, so some people are like, therefore we need to reclaim some essence of Christianity. So you have like the social gospel movement that is sort of like trying to reclaim the ethical aspect of Christianity. You have that stupid bible that thomas jefferson put together where he just like cut out all the peripheral (laughs) stuff and just reduced it to an ethic right like supposedly cut out
1: all the miracles and stuff yeah
0: yeah cut out all the miracles and stuff um and when we uh, were in school
1: there was the ancient future faith movement what's that one don't you remember that book ancient future faith no it was part of the emergent church stuff okay the the idea was yeah reclaiming the early church uh house churches no institutions It's about ethic of responsibility and care and uh, all that kind of stuff. Yeah.
0: Yeah. I mean, I fall into this trap a lot of times too. You know, um, even though I don't, it's very hard not to because you do look at the early church and you're like, Jesus, well, what the fuck happened post-Constantine, right? So that's what a lot of people like to do. They like to like say, ah, it was when Constantine legalized the church and then his grandson, is it his grandson Theodosius in 390, legalizes, I'm sorry, makes Christianity the state religion and bans paganism. That's when the institution of the church comes in and there's this enclosure. That's such a bad marker, dude. Like fucking... Bishops were murdering people and stuff before
1: that ever happened,
0: <laughs> right? Um, and so there is this, there is a romanticism that people are often trying to kind of get, or, or that are they're often perpetuating by trying to go back to like the truth of what Jesus really was doing, right? And Barbara's not doing that. That that's not what he's interested in doing. He's interested in doing something very different. He's interested in thinking through what are the conditions of possibility that make that dissonance, that, that maybe paradox or that inconsistency between the declaration of the gospel and its historical enactment, what makes that possible in the first instance, right? That's what he's thinking through.
1: Yeah, so he's thinking more about the existence of a, a form of thought more so than a historical contingency, such as the church becoming corrupted or something like that.
0: Mm, yeah. It's like what what allows for that conflict, uh, what allows for that conflict to emerge in the first place is kind yeah, of it, right? Yeah, and, and not it, the historical conflict, but the the conflict in thoughts. Right, and his argument is that it's because Christianity has a lack of a concept of diaspora, is what he means.
1: Yeah, that kind of seems like the whole negative side of the thesis of this book. I would think, right. Before you we explain before you explain what diaspora is and what its value is that's the positive side the negative side is what is the what are the effects the negative effects of not having this concept of diaspora
0: mm. yeah and the negative effects are uh, a sort of thinking of transcendence I think is what he would say right that I think he would ultimately say that that thinking diaspora is a thinking from imminence and when Christianity does not think diasporically, it's because it's enclosed within a logic of transcendence. One of those four uh, paradigms that he talks about in the first one, probably the theological ontology or the theological particularism one.
1: Right. And so you may have good and sort of better or worse versions of that, right? Like I think certainly the ancient and future faith stuff is very authentically held and largely driven by people who want to do what's right and care about what's good. And they really care about, you know, the sort of reputation of Christianity and its mission in the world and all that kind of stuff. Certainly better than like, you know, I don't know, the monolithic Catholic church or, you know, right wing uh, evangelicalism in America. Um, But still, I think Robert's point is going to be, they have to rely on transcendence. And that's why you have this counterposition between the authentic christianity uh as it's declared by jesus and then the sort of failure in christian practice to meet that declaration standards and that's going to handcuff you um as far as actually not sort of instantiating an authentic christianity cuz barbara's just rejecting the very idea that there is an authentic christianity right um but it's going to it's going to bar you from from something from something effective
0: mm yeah, I mean, because what he—he's not in any way trying to assert some sort of orthodoxy. He's not interested in that at all. Rather, what he wants to do is he wants to think of Christianity as a type of thought that is deterritorializing. It's the and and he, the reason he wants to do this is because he's like, he's like, I want to see what we can do with the Christian tradition that we have necessarily inherited, rather than just discarding it like, uh, you know, the, the, the radical new atheist types want to do and just say, oh, it's just a sort of degradation of human rationality and it's bullshit myth- mythologizing and whatever else that they want to say about it. He doesn't want to go that ro- route, and he's also not trying to say, no, 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 guys, hold on, we just need to reclaim some sort of truth about it, but rather let's do something productive with the concept of Christianity per se or with the regime of Christianity that sort of avoids either of those two that avoids condemnation or the desire for, like, salvation of Christianity itself. And so that's what he wants to do. thinking of a diasporic Christianity is kind of thinking or imagining new ways to work with what Christianity is. So there's also a level of pragmatism here, I think, that's kind of interesting.
1: Yeah, and I think that frame also helps really think about why well, you would care about this or why anybody in the audience who doesn't have a uh, a dog in the fight about, uh, that's a terrible analogy, by the way, I shouldn't use that, um, <laughs> doesn't have skin in the game. Is that even better, skin in the game? Um, <laughs> I don't know. When it comes to Christianity, right? What if you just don't give a shit at all about Christianity? Well, right. there's some sense in which, if you're at least in the Western world, culture is itself in some sense Christian, even if it's post-Christian. Post-Christian is different than being non Or, you know, extra Christian or something. It's different than if you grew up in, you know, Hindu India or something. So there's some sense in which you have to deal with Christian thoughts in some way, or else you're really just sort of repressing it.
0: Mm. Yeah, this is kind of, um, there's a nihilism if you try to just simply reject it and say, well, fuck, why are we talking about it at all? Let's just ignore it. That's like an otherworldly... Naive nihilism, because you're actually rejecting the world as it is constituted. And the thing is, when you think imminently, you sort of affirm all of the significations that are at your disposal. right? He calls it what is it the host community or something like that. What does he call it? the host the host site or something like that. But like let's say the host site of our uh, future and present significations are influenced by Christianity. To try to simply just neglect them or reject them or push them aside as them being completely inconsequential is really to neglect sort of foundational and uh, integral constitutive elements of the world in which we live, right? Especially in a world of American uh, cultural export where the Christian ethic and the Christian motif is something – or Christian motifs, plural let's say, is something that is – exported through the internet and through capitalism um, and through uh, certain um, cultural trends that you can't ignore now. Like, even if you go into, uh, you know, East Asian communities, there's a sense in which some type of Christianity has influenced them. So there is a globality to Christianity that we have to accept, for better or for worse. And I think for barbara he's not interested in making that normative, actually, for better or for worse... Idea. He kind of wants to move beyond that idea and kind of affirm that it is the case and then say, so what can we productively do within that frame? And I think that's really interesting.
1: Yeah, I think that there'll be some sense in which retroactively, when we see what his conclusion is here, especially in this chapter, it'll make more sense why there's no reason to talk about the better or worse. Mm. Uh, okay. That question sort of goes away when we get into this idea of diaspora. Um yeah we'll we'll come back to that i want to talk a little bit about this discontinuity rupture and apocalyptic
0: yeah that's i think that's the that's for me that's the most fascinating part of this chapter
1: yeah so discontinuity um barbara says he says that christian declarations like the mission of jesus and we, we didn't say this but he he sort of really quickly summarizes um you know what would take thousands of years of biblical exegesis and exposition to determine and there's still many debates over christian declaration is essentially the um the end or the uh sort of erasing of vertical hierarchies of power and then the horizontal um friend enemy distinction so he thinks these these kind of two poles are where the uh, jesus declaration exists right criticizing the powers we saw that obviously a lot in Paul too, which I think we'll get to in the next chapter. Um, And then also the bringing together of uh, groups horizontally. And so the quote you um, said at the very beginning about uh, don't the Gentiles also love their brothers and sisters? How special are you if you do that? Mm -hmm. Um, This call to love your enemy is is not just about sort of throwing hot coals on someone's head, right? But instead about um, collapsing the sort of difference between uh, horizontally associated groups. Mm. So this idea of discontinuity, then he says, the Christian declaration of these uh, of this collapse between ver- vertical and horizontal relationships. it's not only discontinuous with the world's form, because that's usually how these sort of uh, returns to the early church and whatever form they come in are usually about that kind of discontinuity, right? The Christian Declaration needs to be a small, isolated, non-institutional, non-decentralized sort of critique of the world's powers. Mm. And all the different forms of it come like that. Because that was the way that the early church was, right? Especially if you read the Pauline epistles, those are about these small, isolated groups being persecuted, trying to find ways to exist in a complicated world full of different uh, political forms and social forms and all that. And there have a challenging message and a challenging example to the world, right? Mm. But Barbara says it's not only that kind of discontinuity with the world's sort of extant form, but it's discontinuity with itself over well. And that's the difference logically prior to identity thing that you were talking about from Deleuze earlier. It's like a a double discontinuity or or an auto discontinuity. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's where it's, I think, harder to really conceptualize because it's so different than these typical forms of Christianity that you see.
0: Yeah, um, Christianity is viewed from Barbara's perspective not simply confronting the powers of the world, but it's also confronting itself, and there is this scrambling. So this goes to that co-constitutive relation of imminence that we were talking earlier. If there's a cause-effect relationship, let's say, between the Christian Declaration and the world, the, the the typical orthodox way of viewing this is that somehow the essence of the Christian declaration is issuing from God, which is the cause of it, right? Like there's all this language of like the Bible being breathed out and Jesus being the word and the logos and these ideas that sort of seem to indicate the transcendent causal relation that Barber confronts in the first chapter by, by uh, sort of, uh, not transforming, but deforming is actually he uses this idea because it's not a transformation, it's a deformation actually of the causal relationship where what's taking place in the declaration um, is something that also has a feedback upon itself in the declaration, in the contestation of the powers of the world that also contests its own, let's say, eminence, right? So it's not a position standing outside from on high, that is separate from, or that is preeminent to, but that itself is imminent in its sort of um, contestation of the powers that that, that kind of like rebounds back on itself and reorients itself. And so it is responding to, it is deriving its impetus from the world, confronting that uh, status or the the codes of the world that it is uh, deriving its status from while simultaneously um being deformed in that process of contestation which yes, some people would just be like well then, then then what's unique about Christianity that's not even Christianity all he's saying then is it's just like this deterritorialization and and in a, in a sense yes the, in a sense he isn't trying to preserve any sort of Orthodox understanding of Christianity because, the orthodox understanding of Christian discourse is precisely thinking from transcendence. It is, of those four paradigms, it is either theological particularism or the theological ontology. And it it does not think this way. This is a completely radical way of thinking about what Christianity could be or what we could do with it.
1: And, you know, one thing I was thinking reading this, and to make the the point that you're making a little bit more explicit, he didn't say this, but it's something that came to mind um, as I'm reading this. Wouldn't the claim also be that especially from the Jewish tradition where, you know, diaspora comes from in the first place, uh, there never was or never is an authentic form of thoughts. And whether it's religion or in politics or whatever, there is no original authentic thing that sort of is stable across time and, and never evolves. That that just doesn't exist and probably can't exist if you're taking the really kind of radical Deleuzian framework, right? Right. Like there's no sense yeah, I, in which, you know, yeah. Abraham's Uh, ritual practice with his family is in some way still the kernel of like first temple Solomonic Judaism and then Judaism in diaspora in Babylon and then the second temple like there's there's continuity in terms of you know temporal continuity and whatnot but there isn't some kernel that exists throughout all of that um, which is sort of safely held and only on the margins is adjusted for context. Mm. The Mm. same would be true of Christianity, right?
0: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I think you're right. Okay, with regards to this issue then of uh, continuity, rupture, and apocalyptic, so I also was thinking a lot about um, sort of, let's say, atheistic or secular interpretations of Christianity, like someone like Alain Badiou with regards to the rupture idea, and then also, people like Karl Barth, right? And I think this matters because I think one of the other things is, okay, so if, if Christianity can be viewed as this disruption or this diasporic or discontinuous uh, declaration, um, how is it that we understand it as something novel? Or how do we understand it as being either transformative? He actually wants to say it's not just transformative, it's deformative, but we can get to that later. But how do we understand the uniqueness? Like, what is it then? How do we understand Christian declaration emerging out of its context? And, and you know, there's there's been like a lot of popularity because of uh, Alain Badiou of trying to think of like this, um, the event as being something... And this is obviously for political purposes too, that Padue wants to think about, that the event uh, is something that kind of is almost this supernatural thing that comes from completely outside the world. It is otherworldly. And Barbara wants to think of the Christian event, let's say, with quotes around it, in a way that isn't otherworldly. It isn't something that comes from without. It isn't something that uh, is derived from, let's say if you have an enclosed sphere, for example, or circle, and that's the world, Christianity isn't something that comes from outside that, that erupts into it and that transforms that world, that breaks it open. That would be a sort of Karl Barth or maybe uh, an Alain Badiou kind of understanding of the event. It is this thing that is completely other that erupts the world. Um, that's the rupture theory of the event. He wants to think of it as being apocalyptic, which is very different. What did you think about this part? of
1: Yeah, so th- this was definitely the part of the chapter where I was most sort of... Quizzical, maybe, I guess you could say. Um, okay. So he seems to countenance rupture as being very much a transcendent notion. He literally says rupture in some sense is a notion or a logic of, follows a logic of transcendence. Um, and that he prefers this notion of apocalyptic, which I don't feel like he ever actually defined it in contrast with rupture. Uh, I kind of tried to read over this section a couple times to see if he gave any sort of. Uh, contrast but I, I I myself at least didn't see it um, okay. and my concern was that I agree that the notion of of rupture following a, a logic of transcendence is very problematic and often is used by sort of more fascist uh, sort of you know political ideologies and whatnot and and that's that's certainly I think not something we want to use or a logic we want to follow but that eruption um, if I'm getting my my terms right eruption is when something erupts from within right mm-hmm there's eruption and there's eruption and one of them is from within and one of them's like a rupture from without like if you stick a knife in into like a uh a, a bag full of air right
0: yeah ir like the, eruption ir eruption is what he's talking about eruption is like a volcano
1: yeah exactly and so my thought was that you know you've read more about you than me so you need to correct me i haven't I read logical logics of worlds like 12 years ago. Um and understood 10% of it at best. But um for Baju isn't the notion that um the the level of transcendence or from which the event comes is not from without, it's actually from within. Right? It, that's why he uses the um the picture of math of ontology as being mathematics because he wants to take this idea of the empty set which exists in every set as being that kind of locus from where the event comes. Is that not, in some sense, uh, the kind of eruption as opposed to eruption?
0: So there's a shift in Badu a little bit from being an event to logics of worlds. Uh, In being an event, he speaks much more about the event as being uh, like supernatural, and he actually uses that word that it's kind of a supernatural event that is radically other, that comes into the world and completely reorders the world. In logics of worlds, and then this will be a callback actually to our book club on Prozorov, there's a sense in which the event is a sort of a disillusion of the transcendental coordinates that make up the significations of a given world, right? And so it has more of a sort of imminent causal relation that I think Barbara would find attractive. But... At least in being an event, it seems more, or maybe at least in the reception of it, and definitely in the Badiou book, I'm sorry, in the, um, in the Paul book that Badiou writes, the event is viewed as being a supernatural thing that is completely other, that is that idea of rupture that I think Barbara wants to get away from. So so if we're going to say, and he doesn't mention Badiou in this chapter, but he mentions him in the previous chapter, so I kind of felt like he was intimating that Beju is kind of like this thinker of rupture. I, at least, maybe that was just my projection, but it felt like that.
1: Yeah, and to be um, fair, I think Logics of Worlds came out in 2009. This book came out in 2010, was it?
0: I feel like this is like his his PhD dissertation too, or like a, a so he probably hadn't his...
1: had any familiarity with Logics of Worlds yet.
0: I'm thinking, I mean, the, the book I think was written maybe in the French, but I don't know, maybe it wasn't. Oh no, you're right. It came out in like 2009 or something like that, in the French, so yeah. And it wasn't and even it, translated until after.
1: No, it was in English because I, I did a seminar on it in 2009.
0: Oh, was it? Okay.
1: Yeah, so it was. Okay. In, it okay. had just come out when we did the seminar. It was like okay. brand spanking new. So, yeah, I mean, I think there are other notions of rupture that and apocalyptic that could escape part of Barbara's criticism here. And, and I'm personally really drawn to that. I don't want to go too far on this, but I'm personally really drawn to those notions Um, And I'm glad you brought up pros because that's definitely my thinking as well, because there's a clear sense of universalism there, right? Because the empty set, um, the nothingness is universal in everything. It's already there. The materials are ready to go. Um, And so that becomes, for me, that's much more attractive for reasons which we've talked about ad nauseum on this podcast. But um, yeah, I do wonder, and we can maybe come back to this later. I want to try to focus a little bit more on what Barbara's trying to do. Um, that could be a—I uh, um, don't—I don't want to say like a Damocles sword because that's that's way too strong of a claim. But that could be like a, a little something on on his shoulder that we're going to have to come back to at certain points.
0: Hmm. Yeah. 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 So I think one way of trying to understand what he does mean by the apocalyptic or by apocalyptic is by trying to understand what he's distancing itself from. By understanding what rupture is and then by understanding how he uh, articulates continuity so continuity is a sort of like let's say there's a consistency right that there is some sort of um, things kind of just continue along the way that they've already been going
1: or identity Uh, is consistent over time kind of an
0: idea right right and then rupture is that there's some sort of like radical disruption from without and apocalyptic doesn't mean either of those things for him In this sense, he says that apocalyptic is radically futural, whereas neither uh, continuation or continuity, let's say, or um, rupture are able to really think apocalyptic in the way that Barbara wants to because they're not able to really kind of reconcile with time as being this sort of breaking of continuity, but that is imminent, not something that radically comes from without. And... um, And yeah, so I think that that's kind of important to understand. And I think you said that you didn't quite get a a grasp on how he defines apocalyptic. um, But it's primarily because apocalyptic for Barber, uh, and this is a difference between the event in Badiou and the event in Deleuze. Apocalyptic for Barber is, uh, I think, analogous to what we might call the actualization of the virtual or the event in Deleuze, or the sort of paradoxical uh, reorientation of forms. And this goes back to something he mentions earlier, where he talks about the sort of form as being problematic. And this is where problematization and the problematic in Deleuze comes in. And this is where it gets all a little bit weird again, uh, and kind of difficult to understand, but. The, I read the apocalyptic in clearly Deleuzian terms. So for me, for you, you said that you didn't quite think that he kind of defined sufficiently enough for you the apocalyptic, whereas for me, it jumped out the page as being uh, Deleuze's notion of the event versus Badiou's notion of the event, which relates to all of these other explicitly Deleuzian concepts. So for me, I was doing a lot of mental work um, in, my own, uh, in my own head that if you aren't familiar with Deleuze's project or how he kind of formulates his concepts that it might have been difficult. Does that make sense?
1: Yeah, for sure. Um, So I get this notion that apocalyptic is radically futile, right? Um, Right. And what I had in mind there, although he doesn't say this explicitly in this section, so I was wondering if maybe it was just implied, is back to this, um, what was the term he used for it? The uh, reverse causation?
0: Yeah, reverse causation. Or yeah. reverse causality. Yeah.
1: So, is the futural is the notion of apocalyptic being futural really just a callback to this reverse causation thing, where this apocalyptic future thing um, reverse has reverse causal effects on the now? Is that basically the idea? Uh,
0: that's part of it, and then it also needs. We need to understand this in the concept of uh, the relationship between expression and. Uh, Constructivism, and and then I think we also need to understand this as being sort of separate from or distinct from any sort of um, uh, any sort of teleology. There is no telos as well, right? So it's futural, but it's a futural that is radically futural. That is, um, that is, that is radically thinking the novel or the new but from an imminent frame because it is a transmogrification of the very coordinates that condition the world as it presently is. But it's not completely outside of it because all there is is imminence. So it still in a way is, is fueled by imminence, but apocalyptic doesn't exist within the significations that are presented or determined but rather is the manifestation of the excess of imminence it is that which is always beyond signification it is it is the the uh, realization or the the actualization of the unthought or of the surplus of imminence that is always existing at the margins beyond signification and that's what makes it different from like a baudrillian event Deleuzian event is always there but in virtual Form, and it's the transition from virtuality to actuality, the transition from the scrambling of the codes to new codes. That is what defines a Deleuzian event, and I think what defines apocalyptic. Does that make sense?
1: Um, is the notion for Deleuze then not just that everything is an event, whereas for Bajou, it's it's a very rare specific kind of thing?
0: Events for Deleuze are ubiquitous yes yeah that's that's that's, that exactly yeah
1: yeah that that makes sense as as a contrast between the two visions and that makes sense of the apocalyptic then because when i think of apocalyptic i think of this very specific um genre specifically of like you know biblical texts um whereas he's not referencing that specific kind of like genre of thinking or genre of uh um theologizing or philosophizing he's thinking more about taking the apocalyptic mode and just saying actually this is how all thought works is that not the case
0: well he's kind of again he's thinking what are the conditions of possibility that allow for apocalyptic thought to emerge in the first place right and he talks about that in the relationship of covenant ideology so he's looking at um like you know third century bce and he's saying there was this emergence of apocalyptic expectation what is it that caused that anxiety, where all of a sudden apocalyptic becomes the sort of regime that that frames Second Temple Jewish thinking, that there were these expectations, these heightened expectations for the Messiah. And he says it's precisely because of the failure of covenant ideology, which was the idea that God is in control of everything. I thought of it as like a failure of theodicy in a way, right? Yeah, like, not the same that, thing, for sure. Yeah, and and because of that failure, anxiety is induced. And the reason that anxiety is induced is because that's the sort of the margins of signification um, or let's say the the gaps in the margins of signification are being penetrated by uh, imminence, which is always excessive, which is always productive, which is always there, which is always calling us to kind of acknowledge it, which is always scrambling the codes of truth in our political and social and economic lives. And so, what are the conditions that created apocalyptic anxiety in the first place is really what he's interested in thinking. And it's precisely because of the excessiveness of imminence. So for Barber, apocalyptic isn't simply... The apocalypse, which is the singular event towards which future is moving, which is like the revealing of the truth that once and for all has always been there, but we just didn't have it shown yet. But rather apocalyptic is the kind of conditions of possibility for scrambling uh, the codes of reality that make up our world.
1: Yeah, I was thinking as an analogy you know, for our own sort of political uh, ideological location today. We could think about the sort of sort of declaration, like American declaration, versus the American uh, failure failure to sort of perform on that declaration. Right, uh, everything mm. from freedom to liberty to um, uh, to a specific kind of American socialization or whatever. All those things together have a certain promise to them, right? A certain life um, that we can live individually and uh, as a community, which has clearly, in many ways, failed. Right. And mm. that anxiety of, of the failure of Odyssey that you were talking about, that kind of same experience seems to be happening today, right? Um, mm. So you can, you can kind of map that on to, not that Americans live in diaspora the way that you know, Jews in Babylon would have been, but um, there's, there's some sense in which uh, a similar experience of the failure of theodicy um, might be the case. and um, So you can kind of map this politically today. I think that's kind of running through. Are going to be running through um, a lot of this book at some point. Given what Barbara said in the first chapter uh, about getting to where we are today as sort of a goal,
0: yeah, I was thinking about it too. Also within any sort of uh, discourse that has some sort of inconsistency, I was thinking about with communism, right? Like the declaration of communism versus the sort of historical enactment of it. Like that's it. You could also do a similar sort of investigation with that. Um, you could do a similar investigation with capitalism, the supposed the the declaration of capitalism, uh, and then of course the kind of enactments of capitalism. There are ways to kind of apply this um, this strategy, I think, to to various other fields. Um, yeah, There's actually so part of the reason too that I that I really love this notion of the apocalypse that he develops is that it really has a lot of resonance with the work that I do in the uh, in my book that's coming out this summer. Um, on Sartre's critique of dialectical reason, because the the notion of the apocalypse factors heavily in Sartre's critique um, that he derives from uh, Malraux and that actually Badiou derives from Sartre. And so there is this interest in exploring this notion of the apocalypse um, in different ways. And I kind of side with the Deleuzian sort of reading of apocalypse as being something that is ubiquitous and... Um, I talk about the difference between the Badooian conceptions of the event and Deleuzean conceptions of the event, but I'm really fascinated with this idea of the apocalyptic as being a sort of dispositional reorientation to the world that transforms both our subjective constitution and the world as they co-constitute one another. And for me, that is precisely what I develop when I'm in my book talking about the creation of society as a work of art. It is this co-constitutive relation that transforms the world in our creation of ourselves and vice versa, the creation of ourselves and our transformative creation of the world. So I love this imminent relation, this co-constitutive causal relation that helps us understand apocalyptic as being this diasporic, deterritorializing orientation within the world that disrupts the world, that deforms the world, but that isn't coming from a sort of foundational primary position. Because if it did, then it would fit into probably the, uh, the regime of um, philosophical delimitation that he talks about in chapter one which is the idea that everything that can be said and talked about it has like a circle driven or, or, or written around it and then philosophers kind of like stand outside of it and um you know theology is always looking over the shoulder or anything is always looking over the shoulder at philosophy going like hey can we talk about this is this is this philosophizable the way things should and be. yeah is this the way things should be <laughs> and um and yeah i, I love that idea of, of kind of scrambling that so it's not that orientation it's Again, it's this idea that, and this is not your grandpa's Christianity, it's that Christianity itself is deconstructing, for lack of a better term, itself in its sort of deconstruction of the world in which it finds itself, from which it draws its inspiration to deconstruct itself.
1: I don't know, man. I think this whole thing is just a huge excuse to do a lot of drugs and be like, yeah, reciprocal co-constitution with the world.
0: (laughs) Hey, man, uh, Rambo, right? Deregulation of the senses, dude. See? See? My point is made. Not Rambo. Rambo. <laughs> Rambo. I think Rambo um, is, is it...
1: also Deluzian. <laughs> he might be, dude. It's just, is there anything it's, else? It's to... The
0: bullets becoming person. Oh Jesus! It is. He is becoming animal. <laughs> um, is there anything else you wanted to talk about in particular?
1: So yeah, let's just quickly talk about the interparticularity idea because I think this is how he's cashing it okay. out in terms of
0: what does this look like in practice um, in Christianity. Oh, real quick, real quick, before we get there, because this is this matters for this, um, apocalyptic just isn't simply deformation as well. There's also a reformation, and he talks about this in relation to decomposition and recomposition that matters because it isn't just simply destructive, right? So it's not just Nietzsche philosophizing with a hammer, going in and breaking things down. And this, again, is important for Deleuze. For every deterritorialization, for every scrambling, for every decomposition, for every destruction, there's a re-territorialization. There's a recomposition. So apocalyptic isn't just critical. And that's, I think, really important to understand because inter-particularities imply that there are new formations of particularities. It's just that they aren't going to be these discrete forever units uh, that can be analyzed, but they themselves are in the process of becoming so I just wanted to say that because I think that's important
1: yeah there's, so, a, there's that strong element of becoming being prior to being
0: um and yeah
1: yeah so the way this cashes out then Christianity is referenced by Barbara as being like that of John Howard Yoder who um is a I mean probably one of the top thinkers in sort of Christian philosophical theology in like 20th century would you say Although
0: he's very problematic, so he's been canceled yeah, uh, he, he's in been recent he's been canceled since, times. since
1: then. <laughs> <laughs> but yes. There were, there were some some uh, unfortunate uh, sexy things, or not-so-sexy things happening uh, in his life, apparently. Yeah. I, I mean, wanna- it's
0: worth noting, too, that Barber was at Duke University working with Stanley Hauerwas and others, and Hauerwas is a yodarian yeah. theologian, so I think it's worth noting that as well.
1: Yeah, so we'll just kind of put that stuff off to the side for now and say if if that's definitely something to look into um, if you're interested at all in Yoder. And
0: this book, I think, was written before the Revelations came out.
1: Yeah, it was. That was just in the last couple of years, I think. Yeah. Yeah, so um, Yoder was – I read The Politics of Jesus back in college. Uh, I remember maybe two things about it. Um, But Yoder was following in like the kind of Mennonite Anabaptist tradition, right? Yeah. So, not one of these. Certainly not a Catholic theologian, and certainly not one of the sort of mainstream liberal theologians, and obviously not of the uh, sort of conservative institutional evangelical type. And so that made him very unique. In that, you don't you normally think of the sort of Anabaptist tradition and the Mennonite tradition as as really having much of a place for sort of academic theology. Um, they don't. They don't usually are not usually involved in the institutions in which. Academic theology is produced, so that made Yoder very unique. Um, and he's probably best known for articulating a an extremely pacifist version of Christianity, right?
0: Yeah. Yeah. So I yeah, think- I was I was very influenced by that actually in my latter uh, undergrad years and kind of like early graduate school work. Yeah, I remember
1: um, in early undergraduate years reading politics of Jesus and probably not understanding the arguments very well, but being very impressed by the sort of uh, embeddedness that pacifism and nonviolence had in a sort of uh, Jesus religion. Um, and that was after 2003 and the Iraq war invasion and all the debates mm. about that, but it certainly retroactively colored how I saw all that stuff because I was just, you know, a high school kid, and I didn't really know um, what was going on. But certainly, we were in the midst of uh, being in Iraq and Afghanistan, and those debates still continuing. When I read that book, so it had a very formative influence on me, even if I don't really remember much of it or consider much of it today. So, what is this interparticularity idea then that he's drawing um, from Yoder?
0: Uh, let me see. There's a quote here. So. It's from Yoder's essay that's called On Not Being Ashamed of the Gospel. And Barber says that Yoder here addresses a tension that inevitably arises in the communication or cultural translation of Christian declaration. So on the one hand, this is still a quote, the demand for communication calls for significant flexibility So, signification, the flexibility of signification, understood as vulnerability to networks of signification that are foreign to those expressive of Christian declaration. And then on the other, there's a demand for integrity that requires attention to ways in which such cultural translation might blunt the specific directives of Christian declaration. So, um, basically, what is the uh, epistemological... Or or how is it that you kind of... uh, understand Christian Declaration when you're going into contexts where this is a very sort of different declaration, right? And that's what he means by there has to be sort of significative flexibility. There has to be a, a vulnerability to these networks of signification that are foreign. So if there's a host world and the Christian Declaration is different from that, there's a sense in which there's an awareness that there's a difference, that there's a kind of... Um, uh, that there is a way in which there needs to be a relation between these two. So that relates to a universality, right? There needs to be a universality, or there is a universality to the Christian Declaration. It's in that relation of the vulnerability or the sensitivity of the Christian Declaration to the foreign world in which it is being articulated. Um, but then there's also, and in, in, in sense, that there's integrity. There has to be a, a fidelity to the Christian Declaration as a particular discourse or as a particular declaration as well and it's that tension between the universal and the particular that i think is articulated in this notion of inter-particularity yes is that right
1: yeah so i mean some context for this you know in debates on religion and the public sphere and politics um there's a term isn't it is habermas that coined communicative rationality
0: rationality yeah
1: yeah and so really really overly simplified Um, A popular idea following in the Habermasian tradition is something like the universalization of sort of particular languages um, needs to happen so that people can sort of participate in a democracy.
0: Um, Yeah, deliberate. Yeah, exactly.
1: Yeah, so they need to sort of take off the shell of their religious – the clothing on their religious language and their values and beliefs and whatnot – get to the kernel that is generic and is shared between different religions and different ideologies. Mm -hmm. And that's the, that core is what can be talked about in democracy. Um, And so that's, that's a pretty popular idea. It's probably pretty commensurate with like a kind of a Rawlsian view on liberal egalitarianism as well. Although I'm sure that there's some major differences there. Um, And it seems like, even if not explicitly, yeah, it's kind
0: of it's kind of an original position sort of thing, isn't it?
1: Yeah, very much so. That's what I was thinking. Yeah, um, and so I think mm. that this is very much trying to sort of uh, step away from that and um, problematize that idea. What I had written down for this section was that Barbara's use of Yoder here is saying that the Christian communication definitely shouldn't be about the sort of universal criteria of communication. Um, in the Aha sense, and it certainly shouldn't try to imperialize Christianity to become the new universal discourse. Obviously, the Anabaptist tradition is diametrically opposed to sort of those Mm -hmm. large imperial institutions. Um, But it also shouldn't be about the uh, establishment of particular as an exception to the universal. And that was the notion that I, I was having a little bit of trouble with, or at least wanted to explore a little more. The the rationalist and the imperialist Christianity seemed obvious to me what was being referenced there. Um, but the particular as an exception to the universal, I had written down something like a tradition-focused Christianity. Is this the theological particularism coming back again, do you think? I, say a little bit more about that. What do you mean? So um, I think he referenced like Alistair McIntyre as being a version of the theological particularism, right? Where it's, It's saying that um, we all have our little traditions, our little language games, and they're not commensurable. You can't do the Habermasian communicative rationality translation game thing. Um, So you just need to stay within your tradition. And uh, you can have, you know, dalliances with those outside your tradition, right? But you can't ever really, truly exchange values. They're sort of isolated communities in some sense. Um, mm. And that was the theological particularism. And he says here that Yoder, the Yoderian uh, version of the Christian Declaration rejects the rationalist and the imperial versions of Christianity, but also this establishment of a particular as an exception to the universal. And I wasn't sure what that meant, if it's anything other than this theological particularism thing from mm. the first chapter.
0: Yeah, um, so he talks about this idea of being anti-establishment that he derives from Yoder, right? And um, because there is this tension between the universal and the particular, between uh, the sort of universal declaration, um, but also like uh, integrity to the particularity of the the Christian declaration, that that kind of scrambles the relation between the two. And uh, what he draws from Yoder as an anti-establishment figure is that the principle, and this is a quote, the principle of anti-establishment cuts two ways. He says it cuts both ways. It opposes not just the universal establishment to which the particularity of Christian discourse might be subjected, which is uh, the prozer of false universal, right? Um, Yeah. The idea that, that it's, it is the universal discourse. No, it, it opposes that, but it also opposes the particular establishment of Christian discourse, which I do think you're absolutely right, is the theological particularism that allows Christianity to just be its own little micro unit um, that is completely devoid from or separate from the universal. And is authentic to that-
1: some internal identity, which is stable over yes. time. That's the problem because that doesn't exist.
0: Right, Exactly. Exactly. So he says, what the principle of anti-establishment seeks to defend is not the particularity that having already achieved its integrity stands against the universal, but rather the relationship between particularities. And here he talks about, is it Nathan Kerr and this idea of um, dispossession? Um, the the problem is, is that there's no initial possession that is essential in the first instance that any sort of particular Christian discourse emanates from, but that rather... Uh, There's a a kind of like depossession. There's a non-possession. There's, again, this diasporic scrambling that comes to define the Christian Declaration in Barber's terms here. It's not issuing from some sort of um, particular essence that itself is uh, identifiable in its integrity, right?
1: Yeah, I really liked this because it was kind of like saying all the criticisms that you can level against institutionalized Christianity, the imperial kind and the rationalist kind, can also be leveled against the house churches, right? They may be better in, in some areas, right? Obviously, they are. Um, but they the anti-establishment logic applies to both because you can establish particulars as exceptions to universal, giant, imperial institutions as well. They still right. rely upon a logic of identity. Um, so. If you wanted to be a Yodarian, uh, you know, true cult black metal uh fan, then mm-hmm, you need to mm-hmm. not only burn down ancient churches, but burn down house churches as well. Mm.
0: That's
1: that's a little yeah. side joke for
0: Exactly. no no, I I like that though. <laughs> no, that's right. That's right. Yeah. That, that's exactly right. He says, Diaspora proceeds by imagining a positive, mutually constitutive relation between the two imperatives, the imperative of the universal and the imperative of the particular. And thus, it accedes to a process of inter-particular decomposition and recomposition. That's the burning down of the house churches and uh, the creation of the new. The point is, is that anytime you solidify into a being, you solidify into an identity, it's that moment when scrambling needs to enter, Right? And that's how you can think of Christianity as being diasporic. It doesn't matter if it's a universal discourse or if it's a particular discourse um, that is kind of like serving as the the, the transcendental condition or the regulative uh, condition of the critique. You need to constantly be um, scrambling or decomposing both. And then, of course, that will issue into new recompositions and new significations. It's Foucault's – it reminds me of Foucault's understanding of the historicized a priori. Right? So if we're gonna think of Kant in terms of like having these a priori categories, for Kant, they are these universal absolute a priori categories. But Foucault wants to say, no, but the, the categories themselves are historicized. They are themselves contingent. And this is something that Barbara wants to think of. Historical contingency is not something that we need to bemoan and then try to find some sort of solidity that stops it. But no, we need to just intensify historical contingency. But all around.
1: Yeah, and so this is where interparticularity comes from, right? It's again this right. reciprocal co constitution. But here, um, putting in practice in the Yoderian uh, form would be Christianity is not a self stable identity that exists over time. It's a thing that has to be in diaspora, it has to find itself inside of a host community, or at least have some sort of other that exists alongside it. And it's going to be affected by that thing as much as that thing is going to be affected by it.
0: Well, it will only emerge from a host community. It cannot just simply come from nowhere, right? Like, uh, this is precisely why Apocalypse emerges out of the dissatisfaction with Covenant ideology. It doesn't just come from nowhere. There is no such thing as, like, creation ex nihilo here. It's always... This is again the importance of understanding, or maybe not the, it's not super crucial, but this is where I would want to explore more the idea of the, the, the relation of the virtual and the actual in Deleuze. Because it, it's, if you imagine boundaries like a, like a circle that is drawn, um, apocalypse, diaspora, um, this notion of interparticularity, it emerges as it's on the margins of that circle, but not outside of that circle right now it might be that that might be a bad spatial metaphor because the circle implies an enclosed totality and he's thinking outside of that imminence is not an enclosed totality but let's think of of um, totality as being something that is boundless but nevertheless the process of signification is drawing those boundaries and that it is imprecisely it is in that that, that tension between the boundlessness and the process of signification that is drawing those boundaries that creates that productive tension and it is precisely it, at the limits of those significations that is the reservoir for productivity that allows for apocalyptic to become this productive creative force.
1: So what happens though, when Christianity is the host community, like is the current state that we were saying earlier?
0: Yeah. I mean, this is something that I think is precisely what he's going to get into with um, the relationship between Christian and the secular, right? That, Christianity is a host culture of which the secular feeds off of, right? So the secular is okay. maybe does that make sense?
1: Yeah, I can see where that might go.
0: I think I think he might argue that. I don't know. I mean, I I think that that's actually really interesting is is um historically speaking, we would say that Christianity obviously had to emerge out from or from without of a host culture. But what do you do then when Christianity has become the new host culture. I think to truly think of what we can do with Christianity productively, which is what Barbara wants to do, is to also then have that sort of like um, auto-poetic uh, decomposition that the host culture itself needs to kind of also be subject to this notion of the diasporic, right, that will, that will kind of like deconstruct itself. I think that's that's kind of what we would do.
1: Man, I haven't heard that word, autopoiesis, in quite a while.
0: <laughs> oh, I love that. It's a good word.
1: <laughs> it might be the most jack-off continental philosophy word in existence, though, isn't it?
0: I know. I used it at least three times in my book. So, <laughs>
1: <laughs> Okay, so I think that's pretty good on covering this chapter, yeah?
0: Yeah, I think so. I mean, is there anything... I, I wrote at the end, I wrote, like, I highlighted a passage, and I said, I love this. Um, so I just, this would be my Does last Is that passage the whole book? Yeah, right, I, I do. <laughs> I absolutely do. Um, but so, here's the quote. He says, The imposition of Christian signification on the signification of the host culture is not a failed application of Christian declaration. It is the refusal to make this declaration, for it is the refusal to affirm discontinuity. Christian declaration decomposes the already given forms of identity that govern signification, but it is able to compose differential forms, which is the problematized forms, the diasporic forms, only insofar as it submits to the surplus of signification unleashed within the host culture by the liberation of historical contingency from the presumptive forms of necessity that are decomposed that's kind of a technical way of kind of summarizing everything we said, but I think that kind of encapsulates what he wants to do with Christianity. You know?
1: Yeah. I think the basic idea and world layman's terms, and you can tell me if I'm, I'm getting this right, is okay. from several different spheres, whether it's a more conservative, whether it's of the Catholic tradition, whether it's of the evangelical tradition or of these kind of postmodern emergent churches that are more about um, ancient future type ideas or sort of recalling uh, the ancient church, um, all of them have in common this notion of a stable Christian identity. For some of them, like maybe the more imperialist notion, it's Christianity as an institution which can govern the world. For an opposite version, it might be Christianity as little tiny local isolated communities by themselves um, engaging in their own um, sort of uh, locations and never, ever, getting into this more triumphalist imperialist version but what they have in common is a a christianity that has a stable identity in some sense whatever that identity is however that identity is Mm. constituted differently and barbara wants to reject that and say the notion of diaspora means that you're always co-constituted by the communities you're embedded in and then i guess we'll get to the idea of When you're in the group itself, which is the host community, by the smaller communities that are embedded within yours, Um, and a recognition of that kind of contingency of identity or of the privileging of difference over identity is necessary um, to do anything productive with Christianity because these other forms, for better or worse, are not actually going to be productive with Christianity or, I think, understand its relation to secularity properly. That's what we'll get to later.
0: Mm. Yeah, and the stakes for this are eminently political for Barber because uh, those other forms of Christian discourse try to view themselves as being apolitical, right? That they're talking about being or they're talking about spirituality and it's not about politics. Where Barber says, no, no, that's bullshit. This is absolutely political because we're talking about signification, which is the construction of meaning and value in a world that is then managed, Right? And it's managed in a particular way under particular political regimes. And Christianity, as diasporic, is precisely contesting those political regimes by scrambling the codes of signification, scrambling the codes of meaning and value. So it's essentially a political project, which then is... You can see the Yoderian influence because for Yoder, what's the name of the book? The Politics of Jesus. It's like, did you ever read that Shane Claiborne book when we were in undergrad that was called like Jesus for President or something like that?
1: I remember it, but I don't think I read it.
0: It's kind of a similar thing. It's like, no, if we have a Jesus for President, what that means is is he's kind of being tongue-in-cheek. But, you know, Shane Claiborne is all about like building alternative communities. He's kind of like a Christian anarchist, I think, in a lot of ways. But he's precisely contesting, if you will, the political regimes that compose the present world. And there's kind of a diasporic Christianity in that idea that, no, Christianity is a sort of going to work within the inter- interstitial spaces, but at the same time, it's going to sort of like work outwardly and actively decompose the present world order. And, and that's kind of how the politics sneaks in here for barber he doesn't talk a lot about politics but he says that it's eminently political and i think that it's important to understand that that's always there even if he's not talking explicitly about politics or socioeconomic systems or whatever that that's implicit you know
1: yeah the politics of jesus is to be a snarky asshole on twitter as we said in the beginning of the podcast <laughs> <laughs> that's political praxis right there all right, so let's jump into our Sticky Leaves now. The Sticky Leaves section of the podcast is where one of us talks about whatever it is that's giving us meaning in a potentially meaningless world. So, Austin, what's given it to you this week?
0: What's giving it to me? You're giving it to me, Troy. I always give it to um, you. You do. Uh, I'll keep this pretty quick. I just want to do a sort of one-year recap on my time here in sydney it has been one year that i have been in sydney australia and i figured this would be good because i did a shitty minute on australia on sydney when i first got here remember and i was kind of
1: the one about how everyone's in their little cliques and never talks to each other
0: yeah and i was kind of confused like i just didn't quite have it figured out yet and but i want to do a sticky leaves now and talk about one of the reasons why i'm falling in love with sydney and to kind of encourage people that they should come and check out Sydney. Because I come from a place in Southern California where I never had a desire to come to Sydney. Because I kind of thought I already have everything that Australia has to offer in Southern California. But without the deadly sharks and snakes and spiders and <laughs> things like that. Right? Death around every corner, yeah. Yeah, I was like, I'm good. What do I need? Like, it just it didn't appeal to me. It wasn't other enough it wasn't different enough to really like inspire me to want to travel here you know like when I travel I want to go to fucking Europe and see a thousand year old castle or I want to go to East Asia where I can walk through uh, these ruins of civilizations and experience cultures that are completely different for me and I've, I've kind of described this in my living journeys through the Anglo world as being familiar but foreign and so um when I got here, it was it was so familiar that I think I lost some of the excitement and the foreignness that I was anticipating or that I've enjoyed when I lived in Ireland or when I lived in Scotland and when I lived in England and then when I spent my time in Spain. And even though in the Anglo world, you know, they're still speaking English and there's a lot of familiarity with American culture for, th- that I'm used to, there was there was an element, like I said, of that history, that deep history that… Uh, infused those foreign elements that made it very exciting but you know what man i'm really starting to fall in love with sydney and and it's less the foreign element and it's more the familiar element that i'm really starting to get comfortable with i'm um i wish it were a little less humid (laughs) i do (laughs) um i wish there were fewer mosquitoes which relates to the humidity i think but you know there's there's a lot that this city has to offer, and I don't just mean like weather and temperature and things like that. Um, and even though I think a lot of like more left minded and artistically inclined people bemoan a lack of culture and a lack of, um, I guess what would you call it, like alt culture in Sydney, I've been able to find some really lovely pockets, and um, I'm really enjoying it. So I would I would really recommend people to come and and to. Put Sydney on your list if you are going to be exploring, like, elsewhere in this area, you know, New Zealand, Sydney. I haven't been to Melbourne yet. Everybody tells me that I would actually love Melbourne more because it's kind of got more of that alt-culture stuff that I kind of am drawn to. You know, the coffee shops with the weird, funky poetry readings and, you know acid jazz musicians while I'm sitting there reading books on political economy. Like I love that vibe, <laughs> but I have fa- I've, I've found that pocket here in Sydney and people make fun of me all the time actually because like I kind of stay in my part of town and like even last night I went to a house party in uh an area that's called Coogee which is kind of by the water and um uh it's like in between this area called Coogee and Randwick and I, it was like so new to me that it was actually really exciting because I'm always in the inner west, which is where I live, which is kind of the hipster part of town. And so I like people always make fun of me. They're like, well, yeah, no wonder you don't really know where anything is and that all of the beach stuff is exciting to you is because it's like you are always in Glebe at your coffee shops just sitting there reading. And I'm like, yeah, I love it there. <laughs> <laughs> but I've gotten really comfortable. And and then I think also I think one of the things that's been really important And probably the most crucial element to all of this is a really supportive community. Um, And I don't just mean in terms of friends, but actually for me, one of the things I'm starting to realize that I crave more than anything, which is one of the reasons I love doing this podcast so much, is because I need a certain amount of intellectual stimulation every day. And if I don't get it, I actually get bummed out. Like, I'm not as vital, right? And, And I know that, you know, I talk about like going full death drive and I've got those hedonist elements in me. Like fuck, last night I was up getting drunk off wine at a birthday party at this place that I was at and it was great. But it was also after a day of – I was in a reading group and um, I was doing a lot of work. I was I was reading this book kind of in preparation for uh, today's podcast. Um, I'm working on a journal article. Um, I'm working on a couple of other projects that that really kind of gave me some life, and and I don't know, like, when I get out of a reading group or when I get done with a podcast with you, for example, if it's not like super late or something like that at night, and you know, for me, it's the morning time, I'm like re-energized and invigorated, and I've I've found kind of a community and pockets here in Sydney that have facilitated that, and it's just so wonderful, and not everybody needs to find like a philosophy community or a political economy reading group or something like that, but finding those pockets wherever you are that will stimulate your like libidinal flows is so crucial I think to finding your joy and happiness and it's hard like sometimes if you don't have it it's easy to just kind of wallow in this um anti-vitality I don't know what to call it but I don't want to say a misery because it's not a misery per se it can lead to that but for me it's more of just a there's just a lack of energy there's a lack of impulse there's a lack of that bios you know i just the life is not there in me and um and i don't know i just think it's great to find that and i'm i'm reassessing my my time now that it's been exactly one year here in sydney and i'm I'm loving it so that's what i want to say i dig it i take back my shitty minute <laughs>
1: <laughs> you're such an extrovert dude you get energy from doing all this shit i'm just tired and want to go to go to bed or like watch some basketball or listen to music or something
0: See, after a seminar, you don't get invigorated, no, like
1: no, dude. <laughs> r- really? No, I'm, I'm intellectually invigorated during the seminar, but afterwards, I gotta go and just chill and let that stuff like seep in. Oh God, you just want to go party? I mean,
0: well, like I literally got super hyper after this reading group yesterday. <laughs> I think I mentioned it a couple weeks ago. We're going through this book by Doreen Massey called "Spatial Divisions of Labor," and not only was I engaged during. But afterwards, I went back to my desk and I felt like, like crazy. Like my heartbeat was up, and my, <laughs> I was like, I was like, I just, I, I was like pacing, and I could just feel I was like so motivated to do more work. It was so. That's just kind of how I am. It's, I don't know. You see, Sophia
1: got us wisdom, and you're just like hearts a flutter, man.
0: Dude, it's Eros. That's what it is. It is Eros. Yeah, <laughs> uh, I need that shit, man. But so yeah.
1: I got to come visit you in Sydney, man, before that thing is ever over.
0: Oh, you do, brother. What's the best come. time?
1: When can I avoid all of the uh, five foot tall spiders?
0: Uh, around this time is when it starts to cool down, um, and it so it'll become a little less humid. So this time, and then and then the winter. I mean, the winter here is like the winter in Southern California. You oh, know, in Fahrenheit terms, it's like 50, 50 60 degrees. You know, there'll be a couple days where it gets in the 40s, but it's not bad. And
1: all the murderous insects and stuff are,
0: are not roaming about. Yeah, exactly. I, w- I would actually say the fall is really nice. The autumn is really nice. It's this time of year, but not now because we're still kind of summery. Um, I would say, what, like, what is this now? I'd say around May time is really nice. Yeah. And, of course, spring is great because everything's starting to come back to life after winter. But it can start all of a sudden, like, you get a random fucking hundred degree. Grey day with 80% humidity. So, but it doesn't seem to happen as much into fall as it's moving into winter. Alrighty, Sweet, sweet. So, I guess that'll go ahead and wrap up the episode for this week. Thank you guys for tuning in. If you want to follow along, you can hit us up on our various social medias, uh, owls underscore at underscore dawn on Twitter and Instagram. You can email us, owls at dawnpodcast at gmail.com. Uh, you can go to our website. Owls at Dawn.com, You can look at our back catalog. We've got some blog stuff that's up there, or you can comment under uh, episodes if you have any questions or thoughts or anything you want to contribute. What else, Troy? And do
1: remember, if you leave us a five-star rating and review on iTunes, and you ask a short and straightforward and simple question in your review, then we will answer it on the
0: air at the beginning of, hopefully, the next episode. Yeah, sounds good. Alright, man, I think that's pretty much it. Anything else we got to do? Just one more thing, dude. What's that, man? Dasadania Marikansky.